Welcome to episode 30 of Super Entertainment Presents, the television crossover universe on the Grand Guggenheim Network. Coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. The TVCU crew are a team of crossovers who devote way, way too much of their time to connecting the dots through official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to determine a shared fictional reality that we call the television crossover universe. And no, your ears do not deceive you. This is not Robert E. Ronsky Jr., author of the horror crossover universe and star of this very show. Sadly, the fob watch hiding his identity was shattered, and he remembered he is, in fact, the Doctor. And currently, he's out among the stars, saving us from the Cybermen. But no, this is James Boyachuk, coming to you from behind the chrome microphone of excellence. Joining me are Chris Nigro, author and founder of Wild Hunt Press, and Ben Casson, co-founder and co-creator of 18th Wall Productions. Now this is the Good part of the here. show. Now this is the part of the show where Larry comes out and sings a silly song. No, I'm sorry. This is the part of the show where we shamelessly plug our projects and shamefully plug whatever's got our interest, be that big finish audios, books, movies, or those plastic or fr- plastic furniture covers that only the elderly own. But where do they buy them? So Chris, would you like to get us started on our plugs? Well, since you asked me, why not? Um, I guess I will once again warn everybody that Wild Hunt material is on its way. Um, Just a bit delayed, but I'm hoping to get it out by the fall. I'm hoping to get um, the Centurion and Moonstalker superhero novellas, which will be the beginnings of an interconnected shared universe. And I'm hoping to get something else out to do with the Mega Rats. Those, by the way, are giant rats that have displaced humanity on the food chain in some dystopic alternate future. And Cool. Yep. I like to think hey. so, but I'm biased. Just a bit. So, Ben, have anything you're working on or anything you'd like to tell us about? Uh, not much. I'm ashamed to say I don't have much shameful plugging to do. I'm currently taking a sabbatical away from the writing mainstream and trying to focus on my artwork. I'm currently working on improving my drawing classes, drawing skills in several art classes. Um, if there's anything to plug, it might be my debut soon enough with artwork seen online. Maybe I'll even grace a few covers. One can hope. Weren't you also going to mention a certain book you're reading? Oh, yes. Uh, I wasn't sure if this is the point to that. Uh, just a recommendation to anyone who's as in love with the genre of magical realism as I am. It's a delightful little book known as the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, but don't let the title deceive you. Amidst all of the whimsy and joy, there's quite a bit of dark introspection into the everyday lifestyle of Japanese citizens some 30 years ago. Okay. Truly and fascinating I would, book. I definitely need to read it. Now, I'm not going to plug anything in particular, just because of how far out this episode is, and I'm not 100% sure what is or isn't coming out this week from 18th Wall. So please stop by our website, see what covers we're revealing, see what Mary Helen's up to, see what entry from the horror crossover encyclopedia we've entered. There's a lot going on on our site, and you can't go wrong with it. Now, Rob provided us a list of plugs from Scaricon, so let's see what our host has to say. 
So last weekend, we were at Scaracon, and last week's show, though of lesser audio quality, was filled with great guests. We were live and going around interviewing folks with the smartphone voice memo app. I apologize for the quality, but we hope we made up for it with the content. Two, and thanks to Scaracon for having us. We had a table. I was on two panels. I got to meet many great people. It was an amazing opportunity. I'm so grateful. And thanks also to the Grand Gignal Network and our producer, Johnny Wolfenstein, for recommending us to the powers that be. Three, finally, we did meet a lot of great people, and I promised everyone who I took a card from I would mention them on the show. But since I don't want to take too much time on this, I'm going to mention one a week for the next several weeks during our shameless plugging. So today, I'm going to mention Lisa Clavelier of Happy Kitty Studio. She was our table neighbor for the first two days before she upgraded to a better location. She crochets characters from horror, animation, and comics in regular form and also turning them into kitties. So you might have a Deadpool kitty or a Freddy Krueger kitty. And if that wasn't cool enough, she also has a webcomic starring her kitty characters. So you should go to www.happykittystudio.com to check them out. Now, stay tuned, because after this commercial break, we'll be talking to Mr. John Lidwood Grant, all the way from merry old England. Hollywood Grant is one of those rare talents you stumble across entirely by accident. I'm not quite sure how I heard his name the first time, and I'm not quite sure what drove me to look at his Smashwords page, where he had three short stories in his last Edwardian series. When I clicked, I found this wonderful marriage of Neil Gaiman and Edwardian horror, perfectly poetic writing supporting fascinating, well-developed characters and plots. He's also the mastermind behind the website Grey Dog Tales, one of those glorious sites of unusual things and thoughts that so rarely appear across the internet now. Hobbit recipes, histories of the concept of ghouls, interviews, all the best things in life, and long dogs too. It's my introduced to it is my pleasure to introduce the devotee of horror, John Lewood Grant. Hi there. Hi. So let's start with something more basic. What is your story? How did you fall into writing, and where did the last Edwardian come from? <laughs> uh, well, that's a bit of a weird story, really. Um, it, it was something I came up with, uh, oh, 25 years ago, something like that. And um, I, I was a, a great devotee, still am, of William Hope Hodgson's work. Always loved Karnacki from when I was a teenager when they had a huge impact on me. and uh, But I didn't want to write Karnaki pastiche. I read stories and thought, for some unknown reason, why did these four men constantly drop everything and go to dinner and listen to Karnaki stories? And I became much more interested in the, the four people. Um, Dodge Larkwright, uh, Jessup and Taylor, who sat there every night and heard these bizarre tales, uh, some of which were, you know, quite unbelievable, except presumably after many weeks or many months of exposure to them. And I thought, well, who are these guys? There's no mention of their lives, no mention of women. Um, what are they doing there? Um, what are they about, basically? Um and then it struck me, uh, you you have this group, I mean, you, you'd be familiar with, you know, all, all the all sort of clubs and gangs and groups and the, the Holmes Diogenes Club and the way this Edwardian gentlemen gather in armchairs to tell or listen to stories. But I thought, well, what happens when Karnaki's no longer there? 
And I guess in that moment, the the concept of the last Edwardian was born. Uh, I I took who is essentially uh, the narrator of so many of the stories, Henry Dodgson, and I wondered what the heck he would do afterwards. And so I drafted a novel, which the first chapter of which is about the funeral, Kanaki's funeral, and the entire thing swung from there. Um, but as I said, this was a long time ago, and I had a job to do, and uh, I I drafted a novel, sent it to two major UK publishers, both of whom were very interested, and both of whom, after some months and talking to their marketing departments, basically said, we love this, but it'll never sell. Um, there just isn't enough market for period stuff at this time. And, of course, this was before the Great Holmes revival and various other things. So uh, <laughs> I put it away. Um, and if you've heard my tedious story ever on the website or anywhere else, in the process of moving house about three times, I lost the middle third of it, which was a bit of a pain in the arse. Um, excuse my language. And so I, I still have the first third and the last third of the great novel, The House of Clay, um, which is what happens when Karnaki the ghost hunter dies. Oh, no. So not to give spoilers, but would you like to talk about your conception of Karnaki, what happened to him, and then how the people from his dinner parties carried on in his tradition? Which is, I think, one of the more fascinating parts of the series so far. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm not going to give away anything about Karnaki's death. Um, I'm also amused by the fact that there are other people writing Karnaki pastiches which, and, and um, tributes which pass before and after uh, my pieces. What I will say is that the body was never recovered, but that they have uh, a very strong belief that he has passed on. And essentially, they unravel his life. And I, I guess I started to add everything that um, wasn't there in the original stories. Um, who these men were, what their families did, their relations, their position in society, and perhaps more importantly uh, for me, uh, the position in a changing Edwardian society, uh, a society coming to terms with the end of empire. And I just thought this was an unbelievably fascinating time because, of course, the scientific development um, within the Edwardian period was enormous. You have the birth of psychiatry, essentially, uh, in any formal way. You have massive changes in suffrage, um, in the way that people begin to think about women, uh, the way that people start to think about most aspects of society. And so you have an enormously fertile um, area in which to write. And to cut a long story short, um, somewhat reluctantly, Henry Dodgson decides uh, to take on the mantle in his own peculiar way. Uh, and Dodgson is not Karnaki. He's, he's not a scientist in the same way. Um, he's a veteran of the Second Boer War. Um, very dubious about British military policy. Um, unhappy with some things which are happening around him. And essentially he forms uh, what you might call 
a duo. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure what the word is. Um, with Jessup's niece, uh, Jessup being one of the four men, who is actually psychic, um, who has a particular ability to read uh, spiritual aspects of uh, people and circumstances. Um, Henry himself isn't particularly sensitive. And the two of them uh, set up, uh, legitimately and without any naughty business, um, in uh, Chain Walk, which Karnaki has left, essentially as a, a place of study, um, the equivalent of a, a small foundation. And out of Chain Walk, they pursue, at first somewhat reluctantly, as I say, uh, and sometimes not very effectively, uh, the world in which Karnaki, uh, the, the creatures, the spirits, uh, in which, uh, which Karnaki so involved himself. And that's the birth of the, the, the last Edwardian, in a nutshell, uh, around mostly 1907, 1908. And then the tales, the individual stories, uh, carry on from there, exploring the characters, um, bringing in other key characters. Uh, South Africa's a, a big part of it. The experiences in the, the Boer War uh, affected a lot of men. And I wanted to draw that in, uh, as well as characters who are peripheral in some ways, but important to me. Um, Alice Urquhart, uh, an alienist working out of uh, High Helmsley Asylum in Yorkshire. Um, one of the first women in her field, and... Uh, a, a force to be measured in her own right, who has passing involvement, and uh, well, there are others, but I don't want to go on too much. Okay. Um, Chris, would you like to ask any specific questions about some of the stories that you read on Smashwords? Oh, definitely. One thing I that greatly interested me in the last Sarah band, I must say, John, was basically the menace that Miss Jessup and Dodgson face. I was thinking the influence came everywhere from the sirens of Greek mythology to the fairy legends, or the Pharisees, as the, the people in that little village <laughs> called them. <laughs> yes, they, yes, the, the Pharisees, I liked that. And, uh, you know, because it's, in folklore, the fairies were known to do dancing where they would call people in and basically they'd get stuck there. I was wondering what your influences were for that menace, that threat. Well, partly, I suppose, because uh, it's uh, a sort of legend in a way that percolates around many parts of England. And I've never been terribly fond of the airy fairy fairy ideas. Uh, I'm much more interested in the the, the earlier and darker Norse really uh, influenced stories and of course down there they, they do actually still use the word Pharisees but we, we have in many parts of England um, legends of fairies who are basically quite malevolent um, from their mounds or uh, from their hidden veils um, aren't wandering around with little wings on their backs going, oh, hello, everybody. Um, actually, they, uh, if they can find a way to do you in or cheat you out of something, they will do. And uh, I, I find that idea of the, uh, the, uh, the elven folk, the early folk, the she, the holder folk, um, you know, really interesting. I, I think it's far more in tune with uh, life and history 
than a lot of the um, winged stuff, which is basically a product of, well, a lot of it's a product of Victorian schmaltz and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Well, the fairies were well known to, in, in folklore, outside of the schmelts, you know, to use dance to entice people. And it was very interesting the dark direction you took the love of of fairy minuets, basically. Yes, the, uh, the, well, the dance and the music is uh, uh, right across Northern Europe is, uh, is, a, is a key part of some of the legends. Um, drawing in the poor hapless farmers or the farmers' daughters or whatever, and uh, I've always been quite fond of that. <laughs> the, the people who were stuck in it certainly weren't, but it made for quite a story that really tapped into the dark side of fairy lore. And I, I guess another question, could you see Miss Jessup being born out of the spiritualist movement of the time period? Oh, yes. Um, she's one facet of that movement. And, I mean, the difficulty in talking about it is, is the, a lot of the background truths behind Last Edwardian, uh, Last Edwardian are quite um, sort of serious things that are happening in society. And uh, they're, they're more a subject for you know, proper research. There was such a range of... Um, spiritual movements, an astonishing range of spiritual movements. Some of them are odds with each other. Um, through the late Victorian period, uh, I can tell you that round, round here in uh, West Yorkshire, there were spiritualist chapels everywhere. Um, Keithley, not that far from us, was the, uh, the launch of the first spiritualist newspaper in, in Britain. Um, I think it was called the Spiritualist Telegraph. And uh, it was hugely popular. Uh, I mean, the place was littered with hundreds of uh, dissident chapels, weird branches of Methodism, spiritualist um, collection points. Uh, it, it's quite a fascinating bit of history. The trick is trying not to get too drawn into it and remembering that you're, um, you, you're writing stories, not textbooks. Well, I guess one last question I'd like to ask for now, based on um, something Rob said. Rob really was really, really intrigued by your character from the intrusion, Mr. Dry. So was I, so what can you tell us about? <laughs> Mr. Dry is very popular, and um, he's. I, I, I have failed my audience in this. I haven't written one for a while, but I've, I've had a lot of requests for more Mr. Dry. The... Um, the anti-hero, I suppose. Uh, in fact, I, I once playfully got into discussion about uh, whatever happened to Jack the Ripper, and I, I made the simple point that Mr. Dry killed him, um, not out of malice, but because he thought Jack the Ripper to be rather incompetent uh, and making rather a mess of things. Mr. Dry is a person who kills. Um, he's not... Uh, psychotic, uh, you wouldn't call him an assassin as such, although the press do. Um, he kills because it's a job that he gets paid for, and he does it relatively dispassionately. Um, but he's a remarkable little um, nondescript man uh, who has a very clear idea of his role in life, very strong uh, set of personal beliefs. He's very kind to animals, for example. But uh, he doesn't worry a lot about the consequences of actions, uh, as long as they don't come back on him, which, of course, being a professional, they never do. 
I rather like Mr. Dryan. I, I think we'll have to return to uh, his character in full over a number of stories. Um, the Deptford Assassin, as the Times of London calls him, uh, which is, of course, not a name he calls himself. He is merely Mr. Edward Dryan. A yeah, man's got to make a living, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's how he sees it. I wanted a killer um, who, in fact, wasn't uh, a deranged, psychotic sociopath. Uh, a killer who did what was necessary. No more, no less. He does what he's paid for. And if he isn't paid for it, he doesn't do it. Well, recently, The Last Edwardian had its first proper for sale feature length release in A Study in Grey, available now in ebook. How did that come about? Could you tell us about a certain famous character in it and what was like <laughs> combining his world with The Last Edwardians? <laughs> well, I have to blame James for that, really. I mean, it, it, it was all the idea of 18th Wall. Uh, I, I just thought, well, what the heck? Um, there must be a way of doing this. And. I think I carried it off. The, the the real trick was if you're blending the famous character Sherlock Holmes and the last Edwardian, uh, then the last Edwardian essentially has lots of supernatural and psychic stuff in. And Holmes variously either said that he didn't believe in it, or I think once or twice said, well, if it does exist, there's no point in me investigating it because it doesn't follow any logical pattern that a detective could follow. Um, and I think... Uh, I, I was uh, amused and then challenged by the idea of writing a story where it could be believable for either um, readers of the last Edwardian's point of view, or it could be believable, and I, I think this is key, a Holmes fan could read it and say, okay, fair enough, he, he hasn't actually deviated from the Holmes canon. He may have bent things a little bit, but uh, it, he stayed there. And so Holmes is in his retirement period, he accepts for a very particular reason um, involvement because this comes from uh, a case of his uh, rather changed for legal purposes or Watson's legal purposes of course and um, so he involves himself in the background of the case and becomes crucial to part of it um, and I, I hope very much that I've managed to, <laughs> managed to satisfy the two sides Okay, yeah, I mean, it turned out very well. So, every author kills Karnacki in a different way. You dispose of him on a hill before World War One. nothing left. Josh Reynolds kills him in World War One. Simon R. Green <laughs> lets him linger on until the 1960s before he finally dies. How much sleep have you lost over this and all of the alternate Thomas Karnacki deaths? Oh, none, really. Um... <laughs> I, I had such a strong idea, but it, of course, I mean, I, I suppose the other thing to say, I, I don't want to be too boring talking about The Last Edwardian all the time, but uh, I, I suppose the other thing to say is that The Last Edwardian isn't just Edwardian period. The whole point of it being called The Last Edwardian is that the arc I have for Henry, um, for Henry Dodgson, goes from his time in South Africa in the 1890s through to London in 2016. And so it's on a, uh, a the arc's on a scale, which I had sort of pre-thought out for quite a long time, and 
I have sketched, and indeed written one or two, um, stories of uh, his time in the First World War, of his time in the Special Operations Executive in the Second World War, his disillusionment after that, um, the difficulties of being the last Edwardian in the 60s and 70s, um, and his almost complete isolation from uh, normal contact uh, in the 21st century, where you're talking about a man uh, who's fought in all the major British wars for over a century, and essentially he's tired. Um, he he's still there for a reason, which I know, um, but he's tired. Has Carnacki been killed as many times as Kenny? I think he's had quite a few um, murders at quite a few hands, and I think some people have tactfully just moved him out of the way. I think the mantra of occult detective writers is going to be, I killed Karnacki! Yes. (laughs) So, now for a question that's a bit different. How important are long dogs to your writing process? Oh, absolutely, absolutely essential. And I mean, that's where I enjoy myself, really. The, um, the, the, I don't know whether you've really looked at it, but the, the most ridiculous success I had last year was the um, Lurches for Beginners series, um, which is essentially is a very sarcastic take on what it's like to live with lurches and long dogs and their very weird habits, which they certainly do have. Um, and that, that went sort of semi-viral, uh, and I ended up writing, I think I've written ten or a dozen um, all published on the, the, the website, Cradoctails, um, sort of guides to lurchers, uh, how to train your human and uh, bitey face, their uh, habit of going to each other with open jaws, um, oh, stuff about everything. And the, the more I wrote about it, the more um, popular it became. I, I regularly get peaks on the website whenever I put a lurchers for beginners post up. And I, I think it reminds you that there are probably more, probably more dog lovers than there are lovers of weird fiction. But Sadly, that that's probably true. It wasn't actually the plan. It was purely accidental. Um, I just, I, I was writing about this on, on, on the blog the other day, but uh, I, I think I lasted two posts, two and a half posts on my idea of having an author's page last July, August, and I wrote a couple of things, and I thought, well, this is pretty tedious. Um, Even I can't be bothered to read about why I became an author and what I'm writing at the moment. So I just lost it completely, and I just started posting about weird things I liked, and, um, oh, I don't know, stories by E.G. Swain, who was a friend of M.R. James. Um, delightful um, supernatural stories which are not very well known and then I drifted into something else and then I was talking well I was talking to James amongst other people, James Boychuk um, Sam Gafford and others about oh it's about time we celebrated Hodgson so we had a month long William Herb Hodgson um, tribute in October last year for no apparent reason whatsoever and uh, it just got uh, daft like that I interviewed a couple of people during the the Hodgson tribute and we've now done nearly 40 interviews with um, weird writers artists, actors authors of horror fiction and fantasy fantasy fiction I think it's it's coming up to 40 now Uh, and I've got a list of another sort of 15 
some of them quite big names who would like to come on Grey Dog Tales. Partly, I think, because we don't ask what's your favourite colour and where do you get your ideas from. Um, I, I try and come up with interesting questions and I let people ramble on or indeed shift the uh, focus of the interview wherever they want it to go. So we usually have quite a lot of fun with them and you know, get something a bit different. Uh, you must be familiar with the you know, the typical interview format where you give someone five, six, ten set questions each time. And uh, we try and do it differently and we just sort of go into their work and different aspects of it and poke them a bit and see what comes out. And that's fun. Um, it's nothing to do with my own writing and in fact wastes an enormous amount of time but uh, you, uh, you know you get to enjoy yourself <laughs> so John what's your favourite colour and where do your ideas come from <laughs> bugger off <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry I was, uh, yes <laughs> so my what else have you been writing lately would you like to talk about your Edgar Wallace story or Cthulhu Savada yeah, sure. Anything you want. Um, I'm I'm so easygoing. I don't even know what I'm talking about most of the time. Um, yeah, I, I I've got a few things which I, I I'm working on. I mean, I've as James knows, I've been trying to plan uh, and make something out of it. Great Dog Tales took off in such a way that it sort of threw me, and uh, so I'm now spending about fifty percent of my time blogging. Um, and that means I have to be very focused about what the heck I do with the other uh, 50% of the time, the writing bit. Uh, I've done, I'm doing a bit of uh, post-Lovecraft or Mythosian writing. Not many. Um, I'm not keen on digging up the old guy. Um, I've written a Mythosian story here and there where I think there is a genuine different take. And so one of those was uh, my story, Messages. For Scott R. Jones's excellent anthology, Cthulhu Sattva, uh, mostly because Scott said, um, you know, write a story which is Lovecraftian, post-Lovecraftian, but which looks not as the usual degenerate cultists wandering around with one eye falling out of their head, um, muttering things, um, but actually looks at what a, a true cultist um, a philosophic cultist might be like and so I wrote messages which is a, a, a mother and her daughter it's, a, it's actually a story about parenting if anything uh, where her, a mother and her daughter um, carry out the will of the messenger as, as part of a much greater plan um, and I think it's a very human story but at the same time it's absolutely insane um, because what they're doing is you know makes no sense whatsoever except to them and uh, uh, their fellows. But the point was not to write loonies, um, you know, and people with hoods going around shrieking and uh, etc. So that was quite fun. I've just, uh, I've done another one which may or may not be coming out, which is an LGBT um, Mythosian story, completely different, uh, contemporary sort of um, post-apocalypse about uh, two female lovers wandering across a, a broken landscape and looking for hope and then uh, I think uh, you just mentioned it the, the African weird which is I'm, I'm, I'm particularly into at the moment because it's uh, it's been at the back of my mind for a long time do you want me to say something about that? please do 
Well, if you've ever, I mean, if you've ever watched the films or come across, you know, all the various oh, 20s, 30s, 40s versions of Solomon's Mines and Sanders of the River and all these sort of things. Uh, the trouble is, is that they're, they're, I mean, some of them are rollicking good fun, but they're so incredibly dated. And a lot of the original stories they come from are horribly racist, um, and quite pointlessly so. Um, so, uh, I love some aspects of Edgar Wallace's writing and booking and all that sort of thing, but I thought, well, what the heck? Um, you know, you could do a lot better than this. And so I've written a series of stories set in colonial West Africa in the sort of post-First World War period, 20s, 30s. Uh, most of those are written basically from the point of the people of the country. Um, uh, the black people, uh, particularly the Igbo peoples in southeast Nigeria and across the Cameroons, who have a complex culture, uh, a rich mythology with some fantastic ideas in um, uh, and to, <laughs> to to put these people to one side like oh look and there's a load of blacks as the, the white commissioner comes in and uh, says hey you chaps do this do that off you go off you go black people um, I mean it's quite ludicrous when you, you go back to it sort of 80 90 years later and you think oh god well you know these are people with lives and so I'm treating myself in a way to writing African weird but from the other point of view if there's any degenerate cultists they're probably drunks from um, a, a white uh, collection of administrators in one of the uh, coastal ports etc uh, and in a lot of cases the protagonists if not the heroes are um, African men and women facing up to uh, the situation in the colonial 20s there. <laughs> awesome. So <laughs> we said it at the same time, James. In case you didn't notice, but, but, right. I noticed we just uh, lacked Ben's excitement. <laughs> so we're winding down. I'm just checking to make sure that. Oh, okay. Rob would like to know if your Dodgson has any connection to any other famous Dodgsons? Mm, yes. Um, but am I supposed to say? <laughs> I mean, you can just leave it at that hint. Well, you know, if you're, uh, if you're going through a looking glass or um, anything like that, uh, or you know any red or white queens, I think... Um, there is a connection, yes. I, 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 I might tease it out at some point um, when they all go down the rabbit hole. If you get my sort of not that subtle hint. I yes. wonder the possibilities. <laughs> no I need did... to be so snarky, Chris. Oh, that was, that was almost as bad as one of mine, James. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm ashamed. I did. I did trace him back. Yes, uh, an illeg illegitimate connection, but um, we'll see. I might explore that in the uh, in the longer run. There's, there, I I can imagine oh, a good twenty tales uh, of the last Edwardian easily. Um, I probably ought to be concentrating on the novel, but there's uh, there, there is a teeming heap of ideas somewhere between the various dog which dogs which are laid around me, um, and. Uh, I have hopes. I just have to say to other people that they like them. 
James, you tend to jabber a lot, and you make me want to walk, honestly. Sorry, John. That was the worst. (laughs) I got Um, it. I got it. (laughs) My bad, John. (laughs) So now we're to the point where you apologize when people get it. But, okay, now that we're coming to the end of the interview, do you have any other projects, past, present, or future, that you'd like to plug? Um, well, no, not especially. I mean, if, if you want to know more, um, crawl over to Grey Dog Tales. I, I, I pop it up on there on a, a, a regular basis, and I'm messing around. I suppose the only other thing worth mentioning at, at the last moment would be the um, the bizarre Sandra's first pony and uh, Jay Lynn Seed Grant, my alter ego. Um, oh, yes. Please tell us quite a bit about all of that. Do you that. want me to say something about this? Go wild. <laughs> Uh, well, I was brought up in Yorkshire, and I was brought up in small Yorkshire villages, and uh, there are some very strange parts of the place. And I was raised in the what they call the Wold Newton Triangle, um, which is actually a sort of bizarre part of the uh, eastern county, um, where there are all sorts of interesting things from history and legend. And uh, so I developed... Uh, I guess you could call this is also me taking the piss out of H.P. Lovecraft. I developed my Sandra's First Pony stories, which are effectively about a a plucky schoolgirl and her talking psychotic pony as they take on the evils of um, the local countryside. Uh, And that sort of spiralled out of control. I've written a few of those, and uh, I think a couple of them are probably going to be published professionally soon at this rate. Um, But Sandra and Mr. Bubbles... The uh, psychotic pony essentially fare out against whatever evil besets their village and surroundings. And in the process, I introduced J. Seed Grant, uh, who's half me, um, but quite a lot of him is basically a, an eccentric recluse who lives with staff who are pretty much as insane as Mr. Bubbles. And I started putting sections of these on Facebook and other networks, uh, little passages and paragraphs. And uh, they they go through his journal, the fragments of his journal which are left. He's constantly struggling to get his stories published and failing. In fact, he's been banned in a number of countries. He's uh, had his his books refused. He's been reviled by Clark Ashton Smith and H.P. Lovecraft um, and has uh, reams of correspondence with people saying, please, please never contact me again. And um, we also breeds giant albino penguins. I I should mention that because that's quite important as a hobby. Uh, And so it looks like we may next year be going with a small press to uh, publish a <coughs> Excuse me, a rather bizarre journal of J. Seed Grant, which I think will be um, different, and I can't think of another word for it. Yes, I'm rather looking forward to it. <laughs> and your Sandra's first pony stories so far have been especially fascinating parody children's stories. I don't oh, well, they know another a, way to describe it. No, they are a bit Enid Blyton and the the famous five and all that sort of thing. I, I'm particularly fond of um, the uh, feral girl guides who uh, basically live mostly in their hut on the edge of the village. And um, 
also a rather interactive women's institute, which have their own strange um, rituals. Uh, and, of course, there are the, uh, the whippoorwills. I mean, you'll be familiar with the whippoorwills, won't you? Those are birds, the, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Whippoorwills? Yes, are- absolutely. Oh, they're, 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 they're the birds from a lot of H.P. Lovecraft's books um, who sort of cry in the background as everybody gets engulfed in uh, cosmic evil. But... Um, the, the village near Sandra has the uh, Britain's only colony of whippoorwills, um, which sit there disconsolately in the damp, coughing due to chest infections and realising that they're probably never going to be able to do anything of any malign or supernatural nature whatsoever. Um, I'm rather fond of them. And there is a badger who's constantly sick in the woods for no apparent reason. Um, a Nigerian charcoal burner who seeks exile there, um, the village pervert, a uh, very popular character. And, um, you know, it's it's a rich little, uh, it's a rich little vein. I, I don't think any Blighton would have quite approved of some of the turns, but there you go. I know my aviology, don't I? Yay! <laughs> we are so proud of you. It's very impressive. Very. There's a watcher in me somewhere. <laughs> So, let's see, just taking another glance at Rob's questions, because he had some good variety. Oh, he also wanted to know, how did you discover William Hope Hodgson in that whole era of writing? Oh, uh, I was... God, a teenager, as I I think I said earlier. I must have been, I don't know, 14, 15, something like that. And uh, I... I, I think initially I, I, I picked at Karnaki the Ghost Finder, which in Britain at the time, in the 70s, had the most appalling cover, um, really quite gross, which is sort of naked, pot-bellied pink man walking across desolation with a yes tied to him or something. It, it, it's yes. really quite bizarre it's... if you've seen it. Um, I honestly that... think it had to have been made for another book, and then they just... Whatever yeah. happened, they put it on another one. Whatever <laughs> was next in the publishing schedule. It was, it was quite astonishing, but of course it's quite memorable. And I, I looked at that on the shelf and I thought, well, I, I cannot for the life of me work out what that's going to be about. So I bought it. And I was absolutely captivated. Um, and I mean, this is, this, this is where I part company with um, uh, uh, some more sort of academic and critical people because uh, I, I actually think the character of Karnak is uh, misunderstood um, uh, Lovecraft considered him inferior um, and likened him to people like John Silence and others but, he, but he's not John Silence was uh, a bit of a pain in the arse and a know-it-all um, Karnak is very human um, he's constantly getting scared of things he makes mistakes, he gets there by scientific experimentation, and half of his time is wasted, because half of them don't work or do anything. Um, his pentacles and his other gear are all experimental, and he doesn't know whether they'll hold or not. And I, I love that. I, I, I think the character, he hasn't been recognized for those aspects, or for what Hodgson did with him, is that he's, he's not similar to most of the other occult investigators. Um, he's a man of his time, embracing change, making mistakes, getting confused about where things go, and uh, very appealing, very appealing character. Had Hodgson had more time, or if I dare say it, been a slightly better writer, 
I, I think it would have been uh, noticed as uh, outstanding. Uh, the trouble is, is that Hodgson's writing went up and down. It varied quite a bit, and he tried different styles out. Um, Karnaki should be up there with Holmes, in a sense. But of course, poor old WHH uh, died in the First World War. There was never any chance to revise or to go anywhere further with them. And uh, so they're, they're, we've pretty much got the raw material which Hodson left us. But uh, yes, in, in my teens, I, I was taken by that. And Kanaki has characteristics which Holmes lacks, actually. Um, but uh, I, I feel that people skim over that without thinking about it. But I'm probably a bit partial, you know. <laughs> Possibly just a bit. So, let's see. Chris, do you have any last questions? Well, I guess, um, do you, I'm really interested to know, John, if, um, what you have in the future for Mr. Dry. I know I'm revisiting that, but I'm totally intrigued with that character. No, I, I thought that's, that's fair enough. Um, I'm not absolutely sure. The trick is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is that... Uh, I don't want to overuse him. Um, I've had a lot of people write to me and say, you know, can we have more Mr. Dry stories? And I, I think a character like that, someone I'm fond of, is one of those where you think, oh, well, yeah, I'll run with that. I'll just, you know, I'll just write ten Mr. Dry stories, chuck them out there and um, get them paid and out in the world. I would rather wait a bit, so I won't fully answer your question, because I, I want to be a bit more cunning. I want Mr. Dry to come out in dribs and drabs and I'd, I'd like each story to be good um, b before I end up you know, being the, the, the father of yet another serial murderer who's just sort of stuck on the back of a shelf. Um, so I'm with Mr. Dry I, I'm not answering your question probably because I'm going to be aiming I hope <laughs> for quality rather than quantity. <laughs> Which sounds very clever of me, uh, and I'll probably cock it up completely. Well, I so we'll have to wait a bit for the many adventures of the wonderful Mister Dry. Uh, you'll have to wait for me to try and get them right. Yes, <laughs> I still look forward to it, even though things don't tend to be very dry when he's around. If you know what I mean. <laughs> no, no, he uh, although he does clean up after himself. Um, you, you must remember that uh, you know he's he's very tidy in the end. He just wipes things down. You know, you've got to admire that in a man. He's house proud. I, I like that about him. All right. Well, if you can't think of... Do you have anything else you would like to say before I ask the last question? Um, no, as I say, uh, you know, if you like any of this stuff, come along to Grey Dog Tales. It'll all be there, and if you get bored with that, there'll be someone else on there, or you can read the bits about the dogs. Um... You know, eats fun. That's the idea of it all. Yes, and aside from Grey Dog Tales, where else can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, I'm on Facebook, on John Linwood Grant, and I appear to be on all sorts of things, except I don't know how to use them. Um, I am on Twitter, and I, I think I've done 104 tweets in, like, five months. Astounding. Most of those are retweets of someone else's stuff. Um, but I'm at Carfinell, um on um, 
on Twitter. So Facebook, I, I hang around on Facebook a lot, and uh, we at Grey Dog Tales we do a lot of our own memes and ads and stuff. And I, I put up extremely stupid things. In fact, I'm I'm particularly proud, I should say, of the Cthulhu Book of Mammoths, um, which I put up last week. Um, that is one of my favorite recent Facebook posts. Yes. And what's worse is that I've had some quite good authors saying to me, well, I've got an idea for this, or um, is, is this actually happening? Uh, considering I, I did it entirely to take the piss, and it was just a bit of a joke. I um, think you should absolutely do it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because I, I really need some, another project to add to the list, which I haven't quite finished. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I can, re- I, I, I can really see that as a great idea, and then I can half finish seven projects at once. But the trouble is, it was funny, um, because, you know, people said, yep. And I, I, I seriously, I, I've got at least six authors who say, published authors, who say, I've got a tale you could use in that, or I know just what to do with it. So, I mean, whether I do do anything more than the fun, I I don't know. We, we put it ridiculous times from time to time. And, I mean, you know, the, the two mottos of... Uh, Grey Dog Tales, the site. The first motto is Every Word a Lie, and the second motto is Not Yet Banned in Finland. So, you know, we try to stick we try to stick to those two mottos fairly strongly. Okay, and I have one last surprise for you. Oops. I've said many times that Grey Dog Tales deserves an award, so it is my pleasure to present you the Comic Sans Good Job James Boyachuk Gold Star of Webmaster and Long Dog Excellence. <laughs> It will be arriving on your Facebook shortly. Well, that sounds uh, that sounds most excellent. It's uh, I'm just glad you've enjoyed it. Really, I, th- I think we're going to try and keep it keep it up in its bizarre fashion. So, thank you, thank you, very nice. And thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. I hope I haven't bored you too much. Oh, I think you enlightened us a lot. Thank you for being here, Jen. <laughs> fun, fun, fun. Well, that's about all the time we've got. Join us next week when we'll be joined by author Guy Adams, known for two of Britain's three greatest heroes, Sherlock Holmes and the Doctor. Before we end, I want to thank our sponsor, the Karnacki Institute, as well as our crown founding sponsor, Elliot Gilman. And special thanks to Tiny Wright and the Deadites for the show's music, Leaf on a Street. Thanks to all those who listen. Remember to subscribe and rate our show on iTunes. And as always, everything happens sometimes.